Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I am your host. All right, I'll stop it. Let me let me start that over. <laughs> <laughs> got to get back in the groove of things. <laughs> just got to right. limber up. Yeah, limber up. <laughs> the Down now, brown guy. has oddly shaped feet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Radio check. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waith. This is the first episode of 2019. I am super excited to have everyone here. And I have on with me a regular of the show, actually, uh, Dr. Dominic Curry. Welcome to the show again, my friend. Thanks for having me back. This is making me the first uh, three-time three-time guest that you've had on here. Yep, 100%, man. Um, Sweet. Yeah, um, I think you're the only two-timer potentially i'm not you there might be well, one other two-timer i think mike corvino breaking down barriers as we go here yeah. you know, <laughs> on another level yeah yeah so uh dom was previously on episode uh nine and 15 if anyone wants to go double check that um but dom there might be some new listeners that this is the first time they are getting introduced to you so if you can please just take a moment and tell us uh um, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, and you know we're going to dive deep into how you've created a position for yourself uh, in burn pharmacy and um, in a hospital setting, and um, we're going to dive into some other things I'm excited about. But before that, let's start by just telling listeners a little bit about yourself. So this is the uh, the first episode where I'm no longer a resident, um, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> but I did my uh, postgraduate training after pharmacy school. I did my PGY1 and PGY2 in critical care uh, pharmacy at Orlando Health. And so I've uh, been able to be fortunate enough to stay on at Orlando Health at Orlando Regional Medical Center in the, uh, the capacity of two kind of different roles. Um, I serve as the burn surgery clinical specialist as well as the uh, pharmacy operations supervisor. So kind of two different worlds, I guess we'll talk a little bit about, but you know, it's, it's pretty cool, kind of a hybrid position um, that I've been fortunate enough to be able to to go into. So, yeah, and it definitely it definitely sounds like you're wearing you know multiple hats. And um, like I, I do want to kind of go right into that and and just you know the I've been on a kick recently about how you know if you're passionate about something in pharmacy that you need to follow that and you need to you know whether no matter where you're currently working or where you need to be to get your bills paid and things like that like if you're actually passionate about something you need to move towards that and i feel like you kind of almost embodied that like to the t because you basically created your own position like your position actually didn't exist until you kind of pitched it and created that so like tell me how like that even got started and you know just give us a little bit of background as to how that happened so it's like a bunch of things kind of coming together at once. Um, so, you know, when you're a second year resident, you're, you're definitely focused on your day to day, but you know, some, one of the big overarching themes of your life is like where you're going to work after you finish residency. And so, you know, I'm going through the year, um, just keeping my eye out for opportunities, interviewed at a couple places. Um, but my specific specialty that I, I, um, trained in critical care, you know, it's becoming more and more saturated. Um, there's a lot of critical care residencies nowadays. And really, I think that we're probably making more critical care specialists than there are jobs opening up. So when the time came for me to go out and interview and try to find a job somewhere, and, you know, with, with the caveat that I was pretty geographically limited because 
my then girlfriend and now wife. Um, oh, right. She had a, yeah, it's another new change for me. <laughs> uh, kind of weird to say, but, <laughs> um, you know, she, she had a good job here in Orlando. Both of our families were close. We really didn't want to move out of the state of Florida. We really didn't want to move out of Orlando if we didn't have to. Um, but Orlando was pretty saturated and so were the, you know, close areas. And so I interviewed in a place in South Florida, a place in Jacksonville, and really, um, you know, there were there were two pretty, um, I guess, I don't want to minimize it, but they're, they're pretty indicative of how the positions were, at, you know, that are available now. And they weren't, the, neither one of them were really anything that blew me away that wanted to make me move and make Ashley move and find a new job for her as well. Um, and so, you know, I was getting kind of nervous and, um, you know, my, one of my mentor, my PGY1 director, um, he's, he's still there at Orlando Health with me now as well. He, you know, most, he had an idea to, to have a burn pharmacist and just a little backstory on burn. Um, usually the, if, if you're at a burn center, the, the pharmacist that takes care of the trauma ICU is usually the burn pharmacist also. Mm. And so he was serving sort of that capacity, but he always felt that there was enough to be done for them that, you know, it kind of justified another position um, outside of just him sort of covering both and bring, being spread kind of thin amongst those things in his, you know, his residency directorship. So, you know, he'd always kind of wanted a, a, to, to have a burn pharmacist and I obviously wanted to stay and, you know, he, he wanted me to stay as well. Like it, it wasn't like me making the position. It was like a lot of people, um, that I'd worked with over the years, you know, at, during residency, you know, they really wanted me to stay. They wanted me to, um, to be part of the team. I fit in well with everybody. We all had very similar goals. Um, and you know, we were all on the same page as far as that goes. So I had a lot of people that really helped me out and really, um, did their part to, to help make this come true. But at the time, you know, we'll get into the, the, the process of getting the position approved, but it's pretty difficult. And there's a lot of factors that get weighed by administration. And um, the way that I kind of got the position to go through was, you know, really the pharmacy department really needed a supervisor. They didn't really need a burn pharmacist. A burn pharmacist would have sort of been like a luxury, mm-hmm. um, but they needed someone to be a supervisor. Uh, to help oversee the operations of the pharmacy. And, you know, they actually, uh, I wasn't thinking about that position at all. Um, you know, it wasn't even on my radar, but they they came to me, administration came to me and asked me if I was interested in it. And at first I straight up said, no, you know, I took all this time to train to be a critical care pharmacist and um, it's not really what I want to do. But uh, then I sort of stepped back and uh, thought about it a little bit because um, if you think about, you know, what, what my career goal was and even really one of the main reasons for doing a residency was to be able to impact, you know, things at a higher level. And so I started weighing the supervisor position against that sort of thought. And I realized, you know, I could really impact a lot of things as a supervisor. And that really did kind of align with my goals. Um, so I went back to them. I said, you know, I am kind of interested in it. Um, you know, I like the flexibility that it affords me during the day because now I would be a salary employee and I kind of make my hours and, make my day set up the way I want it to be. So I asked them, you know, would it be possible for me to still take care of the burn team in addition to doing the supervisor role? And, you know, they hadn't thought about that either. Um, And at this point we'd already pitched the burn position and it was kind of probably going to get rejected. But when I brought that idea to the table, they, they thought it was a perfect match. You know, they, they saw that I could be uh, successful in the supervisor role. And they also saw that, you know, the position, 
uh, on the burn team really wanted a, a pharmacist, which really helped uh, get the position approved as well. And so we were able to sort of satisfy a lot of um, a lot of wants and needs at the same time. And so it kind of came together. Um, they're really completely different and not related at all, um, but they're both very flexible to the, you know, to the point where each day I can do both. I can kind of move from one area to the other as needed, flex up, flex down, mm -hmm. um, and, and cover both areas at the same time. So um, I just, I feel extremely like lucky, but at the same time, it's, you know, one thing that you, sh anyone that is, you know, sort of in school, getting ready to go out to the workforce, one thing that you really need to know is that if, if people want to help you, then you're going to get to wherever you need to go. And so you got to make sure that you do all the things the right way. You're very genuine. You have very you know, genuine uh, motivations and interactions with everyone. And eventually people will want to help you and they'll, they'll create opportunities for you to be able to sort of take yeah. and what happened for me. Now, but it, it does seem like, though, because I don't think you just kind of create a position because, you know, you heard that, like, it, you know, people you know, you heard about it. Like, I feel like, you know, you heard that there was a need for pharmacists to cover that. Like, it was something that you actually are, like, you like that. Like, it's something that you want to do and, like, you genuinely want to be, wanted to be a burn pharmacist. Yeah, for sure. Um, so during the second year, uh, you know, I took a burn rotation, um, which is basically like, you know, taking the surgical critical care or the trauma ICU rotation again, but you, instead of covering more of the ICU surgical patients, you just cover the burn patients. And so I did that, uh, I think that was like February, March, and, you know, graduate residency in June. And that's about the time that we were pitching the position. Um, so in March, um, uh, you know, I really kind of knew about the burn population from my previous rotations. And it's a very interesting patient population. Um, you know, they're very different uh, kinetically and pharmacodynamically. There's a lot of uh, pharmacy intervention that can be made uh, for them. And, you know, so when I got to March, I kind of had it on the horizon, you know, sort of on the radar that, you know, job market wasn't looking so great. You know, Brandon, uh, he's, he's the mentor I talked about. You know, he'd already sort of been mentioning that it would be great to have a burn pharmacist. So I sort of took the focus during that month. And what I did was I tracked everything that I did. Um, you know, I, I, I tracked all the interventions. We have this um, hospital approved sort of spreadsheet that basically it assigns a dollar value to each type of intervention there is. And so, you know, I, I made a spreadsheet, tracked all my interventions and came up with a dollar value nice. uh, to help justify the position. You know, like this is how much could be saved if there's a full time pharmacist or whatever. Um, and I really worked on um you know, identifying outcomes and measures that could be affected by a burn pharmacist to help build the case for the position in March. And so by the time I got to June, that was all I was thinking about, uh, you know, was a burn pharmacist was, you know, the, just the team, you know, that is already on, you know, is already part of the burn team. There's, they're so great. They're like a family. Um, everyone just respects each other. It's like a, the perfect team environment that you want to be a part of. So that just only added to it. Um, and so, you know, at by the time June came around, I was 100% it's going to be this position or I don't know, you know, it's going yeah. to kind of all my eggs were in one basket. You know, yeah, I've already turned like down it. a position in another place. I, so I was kind of rolling the dice and kind of bet on myself a little bit. Um, mm. And luckily, you know, it worked out. But yeah. Well, that's awesome. And, and that's kind of what I want people like wanted people to kind of hear, you know, is that like, is, you know, that's something you wanted to do and like you went for it. And, 
Um, and, and now I want to go into like how it happened. Like I want to talk about, um, you know, if someone is interested out there, they're like, I, I found what I want to do and I think I can potentially pitch it to someone or to a department or to a facility or to my boss, whatever. Um, what is it that you went through? Now, it sounds like it was almost easier because you were already at the institution. But uh, and I'm not sure if, you know, someone can just knock on the door of an institution and say, hey, hey, hi, my name is uh, Richard. and I'd like to pitch you a, a position. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, talk a little like bit that. through that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that, you know, have to line up um, for, for you to have the opportunity. And so I guess kind of what I've learned a little bit on the other side, not being in part of the management team, you know, it's the bigger picture view that I didn't really have as a resident. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that stuff first. So, you know, you, you can't just go anywhere and just make a position. Um, you know, it's not going to work that way. You have to identify, you know, some like area of need that's already there in the hospital. And to be able to do that, you probably need to be, you know, involved in some capacity in that institution. So, you know, if you're a student intern, you know, at a hospital you've been working at for a couple of years, or you do your rotation somewhere and you hear about, you know, just, just be curious, you know, try to identify areas where the hospital is trying to improve and, um, you know, identify if there's someone covering that area. And if there's possibility that, you know, the addition of somebody in that area would, would sort of align with the goals of the institution. So you have to kind of find something where, you know, the institution is already on board with them being added. Because mm-hmm. even if they're on board with adding an FTE, um, really getting them to go for that position is difficult because, you know, in a hospital, um, everything's weighed against everything. It's not just the pharmacy department. It's like this pharmacy position is weighed against the the price of a new MRI machine. You know, which one's going to provide more uh, benefit to the hospital? You know, we can maybe have a pharmacist come in or we can have a new MRI machine and increase the amount of procedures we can, you know, so like every little thing that involves any hospital operation is going to be weighed against that when it comes time to add something into a budget Mm -hmm. and so the way it kind of works is you know when the fiscal year rolls around you know everyone every department sort of redoes their budget and they all pitch things that they want and then the the upper administration of the institution sort of decides what gets approved and what doesn't get approved and they sort of allocate the money um so one good thing about being Orlando Health is they're in a very they're doing very well financially to the point where they're expanding services you know Mm -hmm. if you're in a place where they're sort of downsizing services because they they're behind financially. It's not going to be a good time to be asking for a new for uh, hundred twenty thousand dollar gift. <laughs> yeah. <be given. laughs> so you have to really you know like timing is extremely important and need is extremely important. Um, so the the process was at that time. You know we're a pretty big hospital and we already got, you know being a thousand bed hospital that just the director and just the assistant director were not enough to handle everything that goes into the operation. So they knew they needed a supervisor. So that's the FTE. So at the time of the budget, there's just a new FTE, full-time equivalent, if you don't know what that means, like a new position is approved. But it's sort of like a cell that's undifferentiated. You know, it's just, we know that there's going to be an FTE added. Yeah. Then from there, you have to decide what the FTE is going to be. And you have to really pitch that part of it. And that's when the actual position gets approved. So I came in at that time, the fiscal year for us is October to September. So I came in at a time where I knew that that FTE was sort of already approved. It was just more like, okay, we've gotten past those hurdles. Now 
convince me that your idea is going to be what we make that FTE. Mm. And that's where you have the opportunity to say, okay, here's what I envision the position being. Here's the benefits that we'll have. Here's the outcomes that will affect. Here's the metrics that will affect. Um, here's how it will affect the bottom line. Because that's kind of, sounds kind of like what you don't want to hear, but really as, as an upper, you know, management, you have to think in those terms um, because like I said, there's a lot of competing interests for, for what you're about to approve. Yeah. You know, I thought full FTE meant full-time employee and never realized it was equivalent. I think I defined that then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you're just never, you're just a never, you're just an equivalent. Yeah. Full-time equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> you're just an equivalent. That's funny. Um, so now in terms of the organization of it and, and kind of how you approached, you know, pitching all those different aspects as to, you know, justifying that position, how was that? Was it a document? Was it a presentation? Did you find resources online? Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what that process was like. Right. So again, um, at the time that I pitched the position, uh, it was primarily a burn position that also was going to implement some sort of transitions of care uh, service as well, because that's how we sort of envisioned it being beneficial enough. So the supervisor part was not part of it. That came at the very end. It's very lucky that it worked out. So in terms of the pitching the, the burn position, um, you know, what you have to do, first of all, is um, identify the need. So it, it was a document that you write up. It's like a proposal. You know, you write up this, this document, you send it to management, they review it. And then they meet with you and you sort of present it. They ask you questions about it. They ask you, you know, they're trying to identify where the true value lies in the position. And if that value is enough to, um, I guess, justify bringing on the weights of the salary uh, for the person, you know. So you kind of set it up like you give an introduction to what the position is. And then uh, what we did was we uh, looked up a bunch of literature that sort of cited you know, the impact of clinical services and around pharmacists on outcomes and on cost savings. Um, because again, you know, to it's kind of different when you're looking at a clinical position versus a, a staffing position. You know, in the hospital, a staffing position is more someone that facilitates the operations. They, they, they verify the meds. They, uh, you know, just like a, a pharmacist is required to do for all uh, orders, um, they verify the meds and they ensure they get to the patient. So it's really more like, you know, on the ground, on the front lines, you're you're making sure the med gets to the patient. Uh, a clinical pharmacist in general, now there's a lot of overlap in a lot of places, but in, in general, the clinical aspects of it are more like you're more like an advisor to the physician and you're helping to, to advise them on the optimal way to treat the patient. And so you're more involved in the decision-making of the physician and the rounding team than you are on just facilitating that decision getting to the patient. And so when you look at numbers, though, when you look at it from the administration point of view, um, it's very easy to identify how valuable a staff pharmacist is because you can measure objectively how many orders they verify. You can measure objectively their productivity. Um, it's not so um, esoteric, I guess you could say. As a clinical pharmacist, your outcomes that you affect are like long term. You know, you have to just there's there's no way that it shows up in the bottom line on a monthly report exactly what the clinical pharmacist added. You know, they do things like they write protocols that help affect decision-making on a larger scale. For like you know, three years. They, they, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like they, you know, like, <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's hard to say on a daily basis how I added value as a clinical pharmacist. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's really hard to put that into terms and to convince someone that's looking at the numbers to say that this is these are the numbers that will be affected. And so we went into the literature, we found some articles that looked at ICU pharmacists, that looked at internal medicine pharmacists, because a burn pharmacist is kind of a mixture of both. Um, and we showed this the amount of cost savings on an annual basis, you know, what could come from preventing bad orders being entered instead of reacting to the the outcome of bad orders. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. if, if you're a clinical pharmacist, you're affecting that decision before it happens. And so therefore it doesn't go to the bottom line because it it never happened. So it's like you have to think about what could have happened if you weren't there. And there's a lot of that's a kind of up for debate because there's no way to measure that. Yeah. You know? And so we did that. And then I took those interventions I told you that I tracked during the month, uh, just from one month, and it equaled out to about an annual cost savings of like three hundred fifty thousand hmm. um, dollars. Know, obviously, that's not what my salary would be, and so you know that oh, tells yeah. me that the salary would be paid for just by me rounding every day, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, plus and more. So, yeah, right. Um, but then you get into like where do those numbers come from? They're kind of arbitrary. They're like you know we assigned this much value to this intervention, and so those are up for debate as well. Um, and so then, then what you have to do is think about what are objective things that you could reasonably affect. And so every hospital has metrics they're scored on, you know, whether it's a glycemic control or, you know, core measures like getting patients their statin aspirin after an MI, you know, things like that, that really affect the administration's, um, you know, view of how well they're doing. And so, you know, you want to speak in their terms and that's going to be more of like, Understanding what things are the, is the department being measured on, and what things affect you know the job security of your of your director and your assistant director, and those are the ways that you're going to get the person to really realize, okay, you're going to impact those things. That's the, that's the language I speak. I can see how that's valuable now, because otherwise, why wouldn't I just hire a staff pharmacist that that I know is going to give me this much productivity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to go through that whole process, talk about all the things you're going to do. You know, you have to give like a, a plan. For the, the metrics you're going to affect, um, you have to you know outline the research activities you'll do. You have to outline you know the amount of teaching that you're going to do, um, you know what you're going to do on a daily basis, and then you know give yourself goals for the for the year. And then all that has to come together. They have to see it as valuable as you see it, and then they they go and pitch that to the upper administration, and then they decide whether it's valuable. So it's like a very long like. You have to make sure they completely understand it because they're the ones that are going to pitch it after you say it. So it's like a telephone game. Oh, shit. You be very clear in the, in the way that you, <laughs> way that you like, uh, present it and speak their terms that they can speak to the terms of their bosses. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's that's rough. You know, thinking that it has to go, you know, from, you know, you go to one level and then that level takes it to another level. And then they're not even technically the one that's like passionate about it. And so, yeah, yeah that's that's definitely exactly. a challenge I could I could see. Um, that's why I feel like lucky yeah (laughs) any other resources that like you know someone was looking to do this that you'd point them to to help them do that uh well another thing i did was i reached out to burn pharmacists at other um other hospitals to talk Mm -hmm. about some of the initiatives they've done uh some of the the processes they've improved and um you know try to translate that to, to our hospital so you know going to conferences is still a big thing like um when i went to uh sccm which is the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, you know, they had a big uh, section on burns the year I went. And so I got to meet a lot of burn pharmacists. And, you know, you look for for institutions that are kind of similar to yours. So 
big level one trauma centers. There's a lot of those out there with firm pharmacists. And mm-hmm. so I talked to them about, you know, some of the challenges we face and how they, they uh, address them. And, you know, I spoke to that when I was pitching the, the burn pharmacist role. Yeah. Um, so now ultimately, I'll tell you that ultimately they, they probably would have declined it, the position still, <laughs> if it wasn't for me taking the supervisor role and merging yeah. it. <laughs> well, I mean, it, they, it sounds like they got a two for one. So, I mean, it sounds like they, yeah, they you know, were. they got a good deal. They got some hustlers in that administration. there, like, trying to trying to make things happen. So I think I think this is a good segue. So I, I want to go into kind of like what is the day in the life of a burnt pharmacist? So like what like take off your management hat, supervisor role hat, and like let's talk about like what is what would a burnt pharmacist do like in the you know we'll talk about maybe the moment that a burnt patient comes in, and then maybe you know moments either. Um, you know, if, if you're only working as a burn pharmacist and no one's burned, like, what do you do? Like, so let's, let's go into that. <laughs> right. So, uh, let's zoom out, zoom out a little bit here. Okay. So to be able to, to treat burn patients, you have to be a verified burn center. Okay. Okay. So there's only uh, 55 of those in the whole country. Oh, and wow. so the thing is like each burn center kind of is situated in, a, in an area where there's not a lot of burn centers around them. And so, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about Florida, but being in Florida, there's a lot of people putting gasoline on bonfires. Okay. Like there's a lot of people like just doing dumb things like, you know, so I don't want to talk too much about that, but point is people get burned a lot. Yeah. Okay. And they have to go somewhere. And so there's a pretty good amount of inflow into us because if they, even if they go to like uh, outlying smaller hospitals, they can't really treat them there because they're not verified burn centers. So we get a lot of transfers. 55, okay. uh, 55 burn setters, and we have 50 of them in Florida, just like making sure we're covering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have a good amount in Florida, actually. But Florida's pretty big. Like, So Orlando Health serves Central Florida all the way out to the East Coast. Um, the next closest one to us is Gainesville. And then there's one in Tampa. So like, there's like a little bit of a circle around Central Florida then out to the East Coast. Gotcha. Um, so we see about we get about three hundred admissions a year, um, so that that equates to about like a daily census of like eight to twelve patients. Um, mm, okay. So, so there's, I mean, all, there's always somebody burned, unfortunately, at the hospital. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there is, and and you know if if somebody comes in with a really really big burn, like uh, we get some people that come in burn like 70 percent of their body. Mm-hmm. You know they're gonna be here for three four months if yeah. they if they make it. So, um, you know. There's, there's kind of a, a wide a wide spectrum. So the way – there's plenty to do, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So on a daily basis, it's kind of hard to separate the two positions because um, they're both very flexible and it changes on a daily basis. So each day is kind of – I have an idea of what's on the calendar, but what I do hour to hour really depends on what's happening that day. Um, but the ideal time for me to be at the hospital for the supervisor role is really more like – nine to six um because that that kind of converges both shifts we have like a morning shift which is like seven to three thirty and then the second shift comes in two thirty to eleven so from like nine to six that's like the, the prime time to be there as a supervisor but the burn team comes in at like five in the morning and so they're already like looking at patients and doing stuff so in order for me to do both i i get up at like five thirty um, I remote into the the patient list and I, you know, look over all the, the, uh, pharmacy related issues and I'm kind of available for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really go into the hospital until 
2009. Gotcha. So I'm kind of at home, you know, doing my thing. Um, so before before we jumped on here, you know, we, we were setting up and just kind of chatting. You're just like, hold on, I got to go check on a patient real quick. <laughs> Was that a burn patient? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Have super wow. patients. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I'm just checking on him. That's a that's a specific instance. Oh, you know, okay. it's, as, a, as a clinical pharmacist, like a clinical specialist, you're you're kind of never um, – it's not like you clock in and clock out. You know, you're always kind of thinking about issues that may be affecting your patients. You get really tied to them, especially as a, a burn pharmacist. One thing that's very different about being a burn pharmacist is compared to like an ICU pharmacist. Um, you know, I see them right when they come in and I follow them until they're discharged, you know, even when they're out of the ICU. So like I get very attached to them. Um, and, you know, I know their stories very well. You get to know their families. You know, when, when you start to see them get better from when they were in the ICU completely like sedated and tubes in them all over the place to the point where now where they're like up walking around the halls, mm-hmm. you get kind of attached to them. So, um, you know, there was a specific issue that I needed to keep track of. So I just was checking on it. Yeah. Um, do they know you're yeah. their, you're their burn pharmacist? Yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're like, like if they're conscious. Yeah. 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 Like I come by and I talk to them, you know, about their meds and cool. when, when they leave, I give them like discharge counseling, depending on, you know, what, what kind of issues they have. And so, you know, an ICU pharmacist, you see when they come to the ICU and then when they get discharged from the ICU to the step down, that's it. You're, you're no longer with them. So you really see them when they're not a person, you could say. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still a person, but they're not there, you know, talking like, you to you. You don't have a relationship with them and like where you're communicating right. with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you have a healthy distance to keep yourself from getting overcome with grief because every ICU story has some sort of sadness to it, you know. But mm-hmm. you know, as you see them get better, you, you relate to them, you, you know you see the families go through something difficult and then you help them through it. So um, it becomes very rewarding. Um, but I don't know how we got on the sidetrack here. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wanted to, I'm going into the day to day of a uh, typical burn pharmacist. So you started right. off by telling us about, we went high level and then we went into like how you were seeing them, um, you know, throughout their time, you know, at, at the hospital. And, um, but yeah, I just want to dive into day to day burn pharmacy activities. All right. So, me personally, I get up, like I said, early, look at the patients, make sure no one's uh, got any emergent issues. Now, there's there are some days where I look in there and, you know, I, you know, the team's like, we're going to start rounding soon. Are, are you going to be here? And I kind of rush in and, and get there early. Um, and those are going to be long days because, you know, the supervisor stuff keeps me there till at least five mm-hmm. anyways. Um, so but most days, you know, I look at it and I can text them issues. I can text them like uh, questions about meds or things we're monitoring or their glucose control or antibiotic cultures that, you know, cultures that come back, things like that, kind of a text away. So um, I'll do that. And then I'll kind of, this is getting into my personal life a little bit, but then I'll kind of work out. <laughs> and then I'll go into the hospital. <laughs> so it's like a way for me to make sure that, you know, I'm still getting my, my work-life balance. Um, so then I'll go into the hospital. Once I get to the hospital, um, if it, you know, the rounds are kind of based on their OR schedule because uh, they're a surgical service. So, you know, they, they each day they have a certain number of uh, OR cases where they're doing like grafting or, or burn wound debridements or, you know, anything like that. And so the rounds are kind of based on their OR schedule. So every day it's different. Some days they round seven in the morning, some days around five at night. Um, so when I get to the hospital, I check in with them and see, you know, what, what the schedule is like for them. So I can plan out sort of the rest of the day. Uh, most times, you know, they I'll miss rounds um, because they'll kind of go out in between cases and just knock them out really quick. And so what I'll do is I'll meet with the team 
in the afternoon and do like a pharmacy rounds with them where I'll just like, we'll kind of run the list and I'll go over any medication related issues. Um, so it's anything from, you know, tailoring pain management regimens to following uh, cultures and recommended antibiotics and dosing antibiotics, monitoring kinetics, um, you know, anything and everything, you know, managing their comorbidities. That's kind of where the internal medicine part of the, of the, the job comes in. Um, and then when they're in the ICU, you know, it's it's kind of a weird overlap because the trauma ICU pharmacist is still following their trauma ICU issues, but I'm I'm following their burn issues. And so, so I work really closely with him um, in, you know, making sure that we're taking care of everything. So it keeps me up to date on ICU stuff and it keeps me sort of in touch with like, um, you know, internal medicine, patient counseling, patient mm -hmm. uh, react, you know, relationships, things like that. Yeah. Um, so the day kind of goes like that. I think that's that's actually pretty interesting um, that, you know, you're able to build a relationship with these people. I mean, and, and I think I mentioned this before, too, and I think another example of that was like transplant pharmacy. And a lot of times when people think about, you know, working as a clinical pharmacist or working as a pharmacist in a hospital, a lot of times it's not associated with building relationships with patients. And I think that this is a pretty great example where you're able to do that. You're able to um, build relationships with these people because you're following them for so long. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, you're, you have a very high touch point of care with them. And I think that's pretty cool to, to have with, with burn. Um, can you give like, so we don't dive much clinically into this podcast. Um, but I want to see if you can maybe give an example of like something that you can specifically say that's really different and, 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 uh, that you have to think about differently because they're a burn patient and some sort of like clinical either intervention or dosing or something like, can you give us some example as to what that might look like or what that might be in a burn patient? Sure. So the, the best example of that is when you get like a, a really severe burn, someone that has more than like 30% of their body burned uh, because the body's reaction to that is going to be pretty substantial. Um, so when they first come in, you know, as a, usually a trauma alert um, because they've either you know, fell into a bonfire or something. We had a one guy that had a, uh, you know, airboat explosion. You know, there's like things that it's very traumatic. They come into the trauma bay. It's very, it's like an emergency. They come in, I'll respond. We have like a trauma pager. So I'll, I'll run down to the trauma bay um, and see them originally. And, you know, sort of without doing a whole burn topic discussion, but kind of, the, you know, big picture view of a, of a severe burn. There's sort of two phases, the ebb phase and the flow phase. So when you first come in, your body is like has an extreme inflammatory response. So you have a lot of vasodilation. And so you're just leaking out fluids everywhere. And so they're going to need to be just slammed with fluids. Um, it's the resuscitation period. Um, they're getting anywhere from like 500 to 1,000 mLs an hour of LR um, mm -hmm. or lactated ringers. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and if you don't know, that's, that's a lot uh, because you're losing about a liter an hour just from capillary leak and from, you know, the, the fact that you've lost a lot of your skin. And so if you don't give them all that fluid back, their organs start to fail because now there's no, um, there's no intravascular volume maintaining organ perfusion. And so they're all vasodilated. Um, now about day two, they, they flip to the flow phase, which basically means that their body releases a bunch of catecholamines, all their endogenous norepinephrine, epinephrine, which basically causes them to clamp down. So the opposite and become extremely hypermetabolic. So, you know, their body's like burning through everything. They're, you know, they have extremely high caloric requirements. 
Um, they're clearing things a lot faster in terms of medications. They have extremely augmented um, uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of medications. And so where I come in, uh, initially in the flow phase, I help them calculate the fluid requirements and I monitor, um, you know, we only have a few things that we can really monitor, but I monitor that they're getting enough fluid. And I help them adjust the rate and you know, help them decide whether we give different kinds of fluids based on what's happening with them. Um, and then when they flip to the flow phase, um, if they you know, have antibiotics, for instance, um, we're gonna give them a lot more aggressive dosing when it comes to antibiotics. And so we'll, we'll use a lot of continuous infusions. Um, we'll use a lot more higher dose vancomycin uh, if they're gonna be on vancomycin they'll be a lot more frequent. Um, if they're on uh, Lovenox for DBT prophylaxis, then we'll give them higher doses. You know, we do a lot of level monitoring. Um, and that's something that actually, that's one of the research areas that we're looking into right now. And so um, what we do is we monitor their, their urine output over 24 hours to give us a, a it's a much more accurate um, assessment of their actual uh, renal function than by using the typical equation for uh, creatinine clearance. So we measured the actual creatinine in their urine. We calculate their true um, renal function, which, you know, in school, you're, you're told that the human body can't go above like 120 uh, mLs per minute in terms of uh, creatinine clearance. I'm sure you remember that, Richie. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's like I'm like writing down notes I, here. <laughs> that, I forgot, that I forgot that I knew. And then somebody told me, oh yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> Just to give you an, just to give you like a point of reference. So normally you don't go above 120. A lot of these burn patients, they're up to like 240, 260. Mm. Uh, so wow. it is it is uh, physiologically possible, um, but it breaks the equation that we use for normal people. And so we measure it directly. We re we find out that they're augmented, um, and that tells us okay, we got to be extremely aggressive in our dosing, much higher than most people are usually comfortable with, because it's just not what you normally see. And so I have to be there to draw levels appropriately, you know, whether we draw uh, Lovenox levels or whether we draw vancomycin levels. Um, you know, one thing that we do is we actually draw two levels and calculate their true vancomycin clearance to make a, you know, appropriate dose adjustments. Um, and now we're actually starting to get beta-lactam levels to make sure that we're, you know, the continuous infusion dosing strategy is actually high enough as well. Yeah. And so that's kind of the main, the main focus really right now in terms of uh, kinetic differences that we focus on there's a lot of things too with like pain and they get on these crazy pain regimens where you know they're on like they get 20 milligrams of iv morphine for dressing change on top mm -hmm. of long acting on top of very frequent intermittent uh prn dosing um you know it just kind of gets kind of crazy we do multimodal pain regimens with like ketamine and uh robaxin and gabapentin so it's a lot of tailoring things to to patient specifics you know yeah that's crazy, man. I mean, that's I mean, it, uh, exactly is what I wanted to get into there. And I appreciate you running through that with us. And I, I think that, you know, it, it really brings people back to like their, uh, you know, I've been out of like school for a while. I haven't heard a lot of that stuff because you just don't hear some of that <laughs> in some of the practice. So, um, but yeah, I mean, super interesting stuff to hear how it's different, you know, when you're treating a burn patient specifically and how there's certain things that you have to throw out the window because of, you know, the physiological things that are going on with them um, in their current state. So, um, so let's, let's take off the burn hat. Let's put on the management hat uh, and let's switch gears here. Cause it sounds like you do that a lot anyway. So um, wh what's that like? Uh, yeah, what is management like? What is, you know, this role that you're in? Like um, if you had to, if you had to, well, I'd probably know the answer to that, but 
I was going to say, like, if you had to pick one or the other, like, would you rather be a burn pharmacist supervisor? But um, which maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll be shocked at that answer. Um, but maybe you can throw that in there. So tell me a little bit about management. So management is kind of messes with your mind a little bit. Um, <laughs> just put, you know, a I think most start. people that <laughs> 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 into the rabbit hole of yeah. management. <laughs> so um, anyone that has a, you know, a manager, I think could relate to this. This is the way, uh, hopefully my managers aren't listening to this, but, you know, there's kind of a view of a manager that they're not doing anything on a daily basis. You know, it seems like they, they're living a cushy life and you ask them what they're doing. It's really hard to give like a very specific answer of what you're doing in this moment. And, and so when I got to management, I was like, I'm going to be different. I'm going to get things done. I'm going to have all these things to check off each day. I'm going to do this and that. And it just, it just doesn't happen because what the thing is like when you're, when you're in management, everything you're working on is so long-term and like so big picture that like you make like, you don't make like daily progress on something. Mm -hmm. And so you go through a whole day, you're extremely busy. I come home, Ashley's like, how was your day? What'd you do? It's like, I can't, I can't really give you an idea of what I did. Like, I don't, I can't write it down, but I was working the entire day. I was doing stuff. I (laughs) I was doing stuff. Right. But like, if you're, if you're on your list is like develop a med history program, you're not going to check that off for like a year, you yeah, know? So it's yeah. just like, you don't feel like you're not feeling like you're accomplishing things on a daily basis. Cause there's not a lot of small incremental tasks that you're doing. And that's why it messes with your mind, especially me, you know, like during residency, you just have so much stuff going on every day that like, you're always checking things off and it gives you like a little hit of dopamine when you, when you get something accomplished and, you know, a week will go by in management and it's like, everything is still not done. You know, yeah. <laughs> so you just feel like you're not doing anything and you have to really reset yourself and really understand that, like, you know, as long as you're working towards that goal still, that that bigger picture goal that whatever management has placed on you, then mm-hmm. and you're kind of getting there. So, um, but something specific that I do, you know, they, the, uh, the director and the assistant director, you know, they're very understanding. Like they, they know that I don't have an administrative background. You know, I didn't do like an admin residency. So they didn't just throw me into really high level, like legal things that they work on, you know, um, they kind of gave me something to like a, a piece of the operations to sort of make my own and and build from there as I learned. So really grateful that they didn't just throw a lot on me that I couldn't handle in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But basically there is a, um, you know, within the, the operational aspect of the department, there's pharmacists, there's technicians, but there's also med history technicians that are kind of on their own. They're not really under the technician supervisor. They're not really under the pharmacist, um, you know, management. They're kind of like their own little group that didn't really have anybody overseeing them. And so technically that meant that our director and assistant director were supposed to oversee them, but you know, they're overseeing a lot of things at once. And so they basically tagged me with um, running that program. And so that's basically, we have 12 med history technicians. We provide like 24 hour coverage and uh, we do all the med histories in the hospital, which you know, it's a thousand beds. And so it's a, it's a lot um, of med, hist- med histories to do per day. So I had to develop like training process, develop the standards, mm-hmm. uh, keep track of them, do their scheduling, which if you do scheduling, you feel my pain. Like scheduling is the most annoying thing in the world. Because it's just like you, you're always like, there's always something to fix. There's yeah. always something going on. Like somebody doesn't show up or somebody calls out and then. You know, it's just, and especially you have a group that really hasn't been, you know, micromanaged, I guess you could say for a while. And so 
you know, there was a lot of things to sort of work on in the beginning. And so that's where I spent a lot of my time. You know, we, we brought on three new people. So I was in charge of like training them, getting them acclimated, you know, putting their hours into the uh, schedule somehow, optimizing workflow, uh, developing call out plans. Um, you know, so really working on the auditing process, making sure that we're doing things accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's all kind of the management side of it. So I'll come in. First thing I'll do is the berms. You know, I'll, I'll work at the burn patients, sort of get the idea for the day of when we're going to round. Then I'll look at the med histories in the hospital. I'll see, you know, who's here, who's not here, um, how many we have to do, um, are we going to be caught up? And then I'll have an auditing process where I kind of do like a small sample of each each of the people that we have and make sure that they're doing things appropriately. Uh, you know, I have also various sort of uh, med history lieutenants, I guess you could say people that are like pharmacists as they're out verifying orders or they come across errors in the med history program, they send them to me. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty good amount. Um, we also have physicians that do that as well. So, you know, that involves looking at the error. Was it us? You know, it was it a, a process issue. How do I fix that process? Um, and so that will kind of be dictated on how many people have emailed me about that. And then, <laughs> and then throughout the day, like I've sort of taken on, I also have, so I have 12 med history people that are my direct report, which is basically people that I directly oversee. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also have about 15 pharmacists, staff pharmacists that I oversee as well. Um, and so, you know, they more and more started to come to me with a little bit more like low level operational issues. Like, you know, this med's not scanning in the barcode scanning or uh, this medication's out. You know, I sit on the drug shortage committee. And so we meet once a week and uh, kind of look at our shortages, come up with plans, develop processes for those plans. Um, and so things kind of just add up, you know, I mean, like on a day-to-day basis, there'll be like a, you know, someone will call me and say they're, you know, we have a physician requesting this super expensive non-formulary med. What do I do? And so then I have to look into it, figure out if it's appropriate, talk to the physician. Um, so things just kind of come, you know, they come and you work on them and that's why you're always there till at least five, possibly later, uh, you know, from the management side, because things yeah. just pop up and people reach out to you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the initial, the earlier question a little bit differently, cause I'm not going to, you know, make you pick one, but what is the, let's talk about what do you like most about management? What do you hate most about it? And then what do you like most about being a burn pharmacist and what do you hate most about it? So management, I really, you know, I talk a lot about why and everything. And in the last two podcasts, I did the same thing. But, you know, my my true why for my career is to have as much of an impact as possible. And what I like about management um, position is that I'm able to do that in a lot of ways. You know, like um, since I already have relationships built with all the clinical pharmacists because they were my preceptors as a resident and also a lot of the staff pharmacists for the same reason, um, you know, I have a comfortable uh, sort of interpersonal communication with them to where I can now help each of them in different ways. You know, I'm in a position where I can help the staff pharmacists by, you know, reorganizing the workflow so that nobody's getting killed on a daily basis. I can help the clinical pharmacist, you know, by sometimes I round for them when they're not there. Sometimes I help them with the residency program, um, you know, because I have a lot of obviously experience in that program as well with them. And so I'm able to help them in those ways. Um, the technicians, they come to me when their technician supervisors out and I help them with their uh, operational issues. You know, then obviously I talked about the med history program. So, you know, I have a, like, it allows me, this role allows me to really be able to help a lot of people, which really brings me a lot of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the part I love about it. Part I hate about it is like, 
Nobody ever comes to you with anything positive. It's always, hey, this <laughs> is going nice. really bad. Fix it. It's never like, you know what? This was a good day. Yeah. <laughs> Workflow was great. Workflow was great. That's good. Like, no, it's always, this is wrong. Fix it. It's like, you're in your office. People sit down and say, I have these complaints. You yeah. know, that's, that's what I don't want about it. Everyone's so negative all the time. That's it's just funny. natural human, you know, it's human nature, I guess, yeah. to not focus. But it's given me perspective to focus on the positives more. And now and I used to make fun of uh, management a little bit when I was when I was an underling, I guess you could say, because it's like, oh, man, look at them just being like cheesy positive. But now I understand, like, you got to say positive things to keep yeah. yourself safe. A lot of people, you know, kind of refer it as funny, you know, like the most of the conversations on Burns, but, you know, a lot of times when people are in like leadership positions and like, you know, high level, you know, leadership roles, either at companies or departments, a lot of times they're they're considered like firefighters. Like you're basically just putting out fires in different places and different things. Some, Some of them really small, some of them really big. But like a firefighter never gets called out, you know, to like to like a birthday, you know, like an invitation <laughs> to like hang out, you know, like it's they're getting called out because like yeah, something yeah. is not going well and there's fire involved. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, I mean, your job is to be a fixer. So yeah. no one's going to bring you things that don't need to be fixed, you know, but some positive reinforcement's not bad either. So I started I started this doesn't really work very often because <laughs> people are never in the right mindset. But I'm like, all right, I understand you're going to have something to tell me, but. You got to tell me one positive thing before you start. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. You should, it like, should be at the end, at the end of it. I know. Like I know. you should leave should on let, a good I note. Let, you know, you got to switch it up. Like, well, it's almost the end of the week. That's always the positive thing. It's like, <laughs> it's almost Friday. It's, it's like, four o'clock. Well, I'm leaving in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost done with this place. Like, yeah. Right. with you too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. but. Uh, so in terms of, uh, but overall, overall, I mean, it, it brings me a lot of satisfaction as long as I focus on that part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the burns, I mean, I love it because all the things I kind of already talked about, you know, building the relationships with the patients. I love my team. You know, the, the team is just like, it can, it's consists of a husband and wife duo. You know, one's the director of the burns. He's like the burn surgeon that is in charge of the entire program and his wife is like a nurse practitioner that does like the day-to-day. She sees every patient. She she makes the plans for their wound care. She goes to the OR. She's like, she's like they're the Smiths, you know, that they're, they're Dr. and Dr. Smith. She yeah. has a PhD as well. And so, you know, they're both were really instrumental in like speaking to management and like lobbying on behalf of the position to get me, you know, able to be part of the team. And I, I really just love working with them. And then you throw into the mix all the nurses and the nurse educator. And, you know, when we see each other, it's like, you know, seeing old friends every day come in, we're always laughing. Like they're a very positive part of the day. You know, mm-hmm. they're not really bringing me negative. They, they, they're, they're just so crazy. Like they're there all the time Like they come in before I get there. They leave after I'm there. Um, I went through a weird phase where I was just felt guilty all the time because they were there so much longer than me. I had to get over that. Like one night they're there at midnight doing a case. Um, they're just so dedicated to, to patient care and like they're not focused at all on anything that is like financial or, you know, it's like exactly what you would want in someone taking care of you. So I just I love being around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the patients are themselves, like I talked about, are very interesting in terms of uh, medications and where their bodies react. There's a lot of potential research that could be done. Um, and so I just love all that stuff. I can't, I'm sitting here trying to think of something I don't like about it, but I can't really think of anything. Um, 
I don't know. It, it gives me, I, I don't know. I can't think of anything negative about yeah. it. I mean, it allow, it gives me so many things that I like that, you know, I don't know. I yeah. Think of a negative, but. Well, so, I mean, a ton of really good information. Um, I, I'm going to throw out some, uh, two, two like rapid fire things at you. Uh, one, if you had to take someone and this is, this is something new I'm starting for 2019. I'm asking, um, probably hopefully every guest that comes on here. What, if you had to take one person to dinner, they have to be alive and they have to have a Wikipedia page most likely. So they have to be famous. Who would that person be and why? Oh man, how are you going to put me on the spot like that? I'm going to sound either. Not intelligent because I'm gonna pick a dumb person, or you know, <laughs> uh, I would say Will Smith actually. Okay, he's a um, national treasure right now on Instagram. Yeah, Ashley follows him. I'm not really big on social media, I know, but you know, she follows him, and he is just like the embodiment of in, in, in everything I say about you know, acting out your why, doing things for the right reasons. You know, he knows exactly what he wants to accomplish, and he just works every day to accomplish it. And he's like the most positive person. You know, I feel like he'd be a very interesting person to go to dinner with and to talk to. And I think it would be like an extremely, uh, you know, positive conversation with him and very inspiring. I feel like I would leave there and just like want to do everything Mm -hmm. after talking to him. I would not have thought you would have gone with Will Smith, honestly. Yeah. (laughs) I came to my mind, so it must be what's what's in there, you know. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And then the last thing with that I I want, um, I won't ask everyone this, but I want to ask you – you, I feel like you and I are very different people in, in, in our work-life balance. And, uh, and I don't think I'm a good judge of, of advising or a good person to advise on having a completely well-balanced, you know, work-life balance, because I think that it's an individual thing, but I feel like your individual yeah. ideal for work-life balance is like working as, you know, like having as much balance to that as possible, if that makes sense. Whereas sometimes the yeah. balance is really skewed one way or another, and that's what people are extremely happy with. And I feel like yours is like almost like at a complete like balance. So I'd like you to maybe tell us a little bit about, maybe just give some advice on that and tell us your perspective. Uh, well, this is just my personal view, but if you think about anything, really anything, like too much of one thing is never good for you. Too little of one thing is probably not going to be good for you either. It's always like you got to find the balance between the two. You know, it's like too many vegetables are not good for you. Too much water is not good for you. But just the, ma- just the right amount of each, you know, side of the spectrum is usually where the, the universe comes in harmony. And so that's kind of the way I view work-life balance. Um, you know, I have – some people may not have other things they're interested in. You know, maybe they they love their job so much and that's just what they want to do and that's fine. But like I have other things I like to do that don't require me to be super intensely focused on and don't require me to have so much mental effort being put into them that when I do need that mental effort and that energy and that drive, you know, I have the reserves built up for, you know, for like work. Um, And so, you know, I love watching football. Like uh, I love sitting on the couch on Sundays and doing nothing for like eight hours. And just, you know, watching football, getting up maybe at halftime to eat something so that I don't starve to death. You know, I love that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that also means Mondays, Thursdays, Saturday. Like, it's a, it's a full-time hobby, you know. <laughs> um, I talk about that because it's almost over. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life after Oh, that, yeah. But. We only have, like, three <laughs> games left, man. It's going to be rough. Yeah. But, you know, I also love uh, – me and Ashley love cooking. So every night, you know, like, we don't watch TV. Um, we come home and we cook – uh, home cooked dinner, fresh ingredients every night. By the time we're done with that, it's like time for bed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So that's something I dedicate myself to. I, I, I really enjoy exercise, really enjoy working out. So I dedicate time to that. Uh, I also like reading non-medical stuff. Um, like I've started to read more just novels about things. And you know, I, I do read a lot of leadership things and uh, you know, spiritual, uh, like, you know, spirituality type books to help with mindset and things like that. But that all kind of requires mental effort as well. But I like reading things that also don't require mental effort, like to give yourself a break, but you're still, um, you know, doing something intellectually stimulating at the same time, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so, you know, all those things kind of piece together, you know, and then you throw into, you know, being a newlywed. Um, we like to go to like, we like to go to live shows. We like to travel. Uh, we like, you know, we just like hanging out with each other. We're like the two biggest goobers in the world. We're around each other that she'd probably be mad that I said that, but no, I can confirm you know, it. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you just, yeah, but it just makes us happy, you know. And yeah. so we we could talk about pharmacy all day long, but you know, it just it doesn't really bring us too much happiness. So uh, work kind of stays at work. You know, there's definitely nights where I come home and have a lot of things to do, but I balance those out with like a weekend day where kind of just doing nothing. Like I'm working. I I do like woodworking now. I don't know if I told you that, but no. uh, like like refinishing furniture. Oh yeah, um, yeah. okay, you told me that. Yeah, you know, just just things that aren't pharmacy related, so that when you go back in and you're not you're not you don't get burned out on it, you know, like burnout is like the biggest topic everywhere right now. Is how do you reduce burnout? How do you reduce flow? To me, it's pretty simple. It's like you can't do too much of one thing, just like anything else, you know. Mm -hmm. Like you got you got to find other things that allow you to recharge yourself. So you got to figure out things that recharge you. Some people like going and being around people. They like going out and. You know, being in groups, other people like me and Ashley like being at home with each other and just kind of doing our own thing, and, and that recharges us so that when you have to go face the daily hassles of work, like even my job, as much as I really bring a lot of satisfaction from, from it, you know, there's a lot of things that stress you out on a daily basis that you could allow yourself to be overcome with. But mm -hmm. because I have the the tank is sort of empty because I empty it out with the, the other part of my life, you know, I, ha I can withstand a lot more during the day. And if you're always just go, 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 your tank is full. Every little last drop that goes into that tank, you're going to, it's going to like boil over, you know, and you're going to get to the point where you're just stressed out. Like you're just negative. All you see is the negative things and you become like very contagious. And, you know, it's just, it can really bring you down. So, yeah, I don't know. Like right now I don't have kids either. So that's probably going to be a lot different. You know, eventually when we have kids and stuff, but this is like the perfect time of my life where I have time, youth and money kind of all, all at the same time. So I'm trying to stay present and just enjoy it as much as possible. Yeah. That time, other time I feel you, man. I'm a, uh, my, my work life balance is completely different, but I think it's, we talk about that though. Yeah. You, know, like you have, different, you have different reasons and you have a different path that you're on. Yeah. It's not completely, you know, the way you explain it to me is like, I'm not like completely against the way that you live your life either. You know, it's, yeah. it suits me more than it would, you know, me and my specific circumstances. And, and I think the interesting too to point out is, you know, you, we talk about burnout. Like if I was, I feel like if, if I'm doing what I'm doing and working the way I'm working now and I only could do that in a retail community pharmacy setting, I would probably go crazy and have that real burnout problem, you know? So I think yeah. it also depends on what it is that you're doing that would potentially cause that burnout to happen and require the balance, you know, because of the stress levels that potentially come along with your job. So, um, whereas some of the things that I do, you know, and the other work that I do, it's, it's actually not, you know, it's something that I'm, I'm truly enjoying and it's not really stressful 
and you know and because again some of those you know some of the goals that I have there but um I, I wanted to I really appreciate you kind of going through that with us because I wanted people to hear because I think a lot of times people hear kind of how I might have or like the things that I do in terms of my work-life balance that's not super existent but I'm glad that they can also hear another perspective from someone that is doing you know um, from someone that is doing like really nice things and um, in pharmacy and, and having an impact on uh, patient care and, you know, being a leader and those kinds of things. So I'm glad you were able to go through that. Um, anything, I, I think we're closing in on an hour here. And, and again, I always appreciate your time. This conversation is always wonderful with you. And uh, any last words that you want to leave the listeners with until you come on here for a fourth episode? <laughs> yes. So um, we were talking about, you know, drawing satisfaction from your job. And I, I think, a realization I had a little while ago, um, everyone, whether you know what it is or you don't know what it is, you have some sort of like core purpose or core why that you're looking for in your job, subconsciously or whatever it is. And if you're getting that out of your job, you'll be satisfied. If you're not getting it, you won't be satisfied. And I feel like to me, it's black and white like that. And so your job as anyone out there is to really be able to verbalize and internalize what exactly it is that your why is. And so that you can look at your job or your circumstance and, and weigh it against each other and say, is this going to help me achieve it or not? Because at the end of the day, that's what will determine whether you're satisfied or not. Um, and that a perfect example of that is when they asked me if I was interested in the supervisor position. You know, on face value, that's not what I did a residency for. That's not what I want to do. And I probably would have said no if I didn't know what my true why was, which, you know, like I, like I mentioned, like, it was to have as big of an impact as possible, be in the big picture side of things. And I so I started thinking about it. And I'm like, all right, that's my why. This job will help me get there. And so I said yes to it. And it was the best decision I ever made. Because you know, I almost said no one took a lesser position that required me to move, required Ashley to move, and probably lead to me being not as satisfied as I am now. And so really work on it. Like really work on what are the things that you have liked in the past? Like what are the things that you felt satisfied doing? And try to figure out what the core theme is between all those things. And make sure that whenever you're looking for a career, you're pursuing a career, whatever it is, that it's going to allow you to achieve that. Because if you don't get that, then you will not be satisfied. There's no way to be satisfied without it. Nice. Drop. Drops, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Literally almost dropped it. Yeah. I, it's, on a, it's on a rolly thing and it almost knocked it off. <laughs> <laughs> How can people reach you if they want to connect with you after this? Uh, like I said, I'm not really on social media. I mean, I've not checked yet. it like I gotta one, work on that once with a you. month. You know, if you send me like a message, I, I might get to it a w in a while. Um, but you can just email me. I mean, I, I look at my email every day okay. on my phone. You know, oh. And it allows me, like if you, I feel like if you direct message me, it tells you when I read it. And now there's like a pressure to respond right away. But if, if it's an email, I can say, well, I didn't see it. it time. <laughs> Went to spam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. So it's usually to put my email and yeah. like, uh, in the show notes or whatever. I'll put in the show notes. Dom, as always, appreciate you. Thank you for your time. No problem. Always love being here. Hey, everyone. First of all, thank you so much uh, for being a listener, for being a subscriber and taking in all the content that we're putting out. And, uh, you know, if you haven't subscribed yet, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on any of your favorite social media platforms, uh, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, we're on all those. And until next time, see you over the counter. Pharmacy.